G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. Be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd greatly appreciate a moment, a couple of minutes of your time to uh, leave us a review. So, so still joining um, uh, Brian and myself remotely, we're, we're not we're not in the studio, um, is Dr. Irina Grammer, one of our um, uh, oncologist, one of our lecturers in oncology, that's what the word I was missing, in um, uh, here at the at the RVC. So thank you, Irina, for, for, for joining us, um, even though it's remotely. But that seems to be the new norm now. Thank you, Dom. Thanks for the introduction. So I thought what we we're going to talk about would be uh, about hemangiosarcomas. So, so something that um, I know that uh, both of our sort of services uh, see sort of quite quite uh, a lot, um, and thought it'd be good to to have a sort of catch up about what we're what we're doing at the moment and um, are there things that we're we're looking to sort of in in the future. So, um, so maybe if I could just ask by saying is 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 are hemangiosarcomas like a common um, part of a common um, um, uh, neoplasia of, of the things that you see on the oncology service is quite common for you? Uh, yes, Dom, I, I, I would definitely say so. And I think the sort of interesting and exciting factor about those tumours is um, that um, they definitely require a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so a lot of the time, our classic example would be the dog presenting with a hemoabdomen, um, and that has to be seen as an emergency and uh, hence will come through our ECC service primarily um, and um, will require surgical intervention um, and obviously stabilization through that um, and then gets passed on to the oncology service. Um, so I think it's a sort of um, good case example for involving multiple services. And um, yes, I would definitely say so. We, we do see them um, very regularly. Um, absolutely. Um, probably if we're looking into canine hemangiosarcomas, um, as I said, the hemoabdomen is the classic presentation. So often we find them to be visceral tumours with involvement of spleen, liver, um, omentum or a combination of those. Um, but we also do see them um, on, on the skin um, occasionally. Um, we can find them in the heart. Um, and there are various, um, well, more rare locations where we can identify those tumours as well. So, Rina, do, do you see some, uh, have some re like referrals or people phone up for advice that they say they can identify a mass, say, on the spleen or, or liver, um, and that there hasn't been a, a, a hemoabdomen or hemoperitoneum, and they say, like, what, what, should I, what should I do? So do you think it's worthwhile... Um, what, what can you tell me your your kind of approach to that, and maybe whether it's worthwhile to 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 biopsy it, and if you biopsy, how to mm. do that? Yes, um, absolutely. So we do we do get those calls um, uh, occasionally. We do. Um, in the case of hemangiosarcomas, get them what we say early on, where a hemoabdomen has not occurred yet. Um, regarding biopsies, I personally am not a very big fan of taking a biopsy of a spleen. Um, so we would probably prefer taking a cytology. Um, now, the problem with those hemangiosarcomas a lot of the time is there are cavitated masses and oftentimes finding um, an intact sort of capsule where there's solid tissue um, that would give us a representative sample can sometimes be disappointing. Uh, for, for the liver, um, 
I'm sort of more inclined to taking a biopsy again if um, if we can find a nice sort of solid tissue bit that we can identify. Um, so sort of to wrap to wrap it up, what we um, advise or generally try to do is base a lot of this on one that's clinical science. Is there anything else that is associated um, with a potential abdominal mass? There um, is potentially surgical intervention um, justified, even without taking a cytology or um, a biopsy sample beforehand. We sometimes try to help ourselves with the size of the tumor a little bit, because we do know 50% of these splenic tumors in dogs are benign, and the other half is malignant, and the majority of them are hemangiosarcomas. Um, so there is this question mark, uh, do we go and remove a spleen um, and risk potentially um, taking out a benign tumor. The conversation I tend to have with the owner is I essentially lay out the facts to them and say, look, the dog doesn't have a hemo abdomen um, at this um, point in time, um, but the mass could either be monitored for, for growth um, and should certainly be removed if, if that is the case. Um, or we could um, get ahead of ourselves and remove the spleen. And in the case of hermangiosarcoma, we've um, potentially added um, quite a few months to the, to the survival time if we catch it early. Um, if we've removed a benign tumour, I don't think um, we should be disappointed about that either because um, we know that benign splenic tumours can lead to significant bleeding as well um, and, uh, post, uh, and can be life-threatening that way. So th thanks for that. And, and do you, is, is there anything that could look alike? So I suppose are there are there any any differentials that um, are, are pretty rare, I suppose, or not or not, not as common as mentioned sarcomas that that might be um, more appropriate for for chemotherapy rather than um, rather than surgery or or um, yeah or surgical removal. Mm -hmm. uh, so that there are two cancer types, um, especially if we're thinking um, to identify these hemangiosarcomas in spleen or liver. Um, two other types of cancer that can potentially occur there. Um, one would be going towards more round cell tumours, which classic examples would be lymphoma or muscle cell tumours. Um, now, they tend to more diffusely infiltrate the organs, so you might just see some heterogeneous changes rather than um, a big solid mass. Um, other potential um, differentials that we can tackle with chemotherapy um, could be something like a histiocytic sarcoma, they can certainly present as solid mass um, and can look like um, an hemangiosarcoma that may not be as well cavitated as the classic presentation. Um, other sarcomas would be quite rare. Um, things that come to mind are other sarcomas, um, such as um, leiomyosarcomas or even osteosarcomas. Um, there are possibilities. Um, other things that we should consider is um, identifying one mass in spleen or liver may not mean that we have identified the primary tumour. It could be that we're looking at metastasis from elsewhere, in which case um, it could be a metastatic carcinoma um, that has formed a singular lesion in those organs, but actually we're looking at uh, having to still find the primary tumour. So, so you can ask, I suppose if we're um, talking about there could be something else going on, maybe it's a good time to talk about um, diagnostic imaging and, and, yeah. and what's, your, what's your sort of take on that with, with these, um, say, cases? Now, do you think it's important to image 
before, say, a surgical intervention? Or do you think that actually you know, a surgical intervention and find out what the cancer is is, is the is the most important thing and then image later. So I suppose does that, how does diagnostic imaging change your decision-making tree as it were? Yes, I think, I think it, it definitely does, but I think we also have to consider the individual um, situation. So I think if we are in a emergency situation with a hemoabdomen, um, I think what I would potentially consider is um, a thoracic radiograph before going into surgery, um, as it may change the owner's mind um, over how invasive they want to be if we have lungs that are full of meds. Um, if we are in a more sort of elective procedure area and a case gets referred for an incidentally found splenic or hepatic mass, um, then certainly um, I would like to perform imaging of chest and abdomen um, to rule out um, that a primary tumour might be sitting elsewhere um, or if um, the primary tumour sits in spleen or liver to make sure that we're not missing any metastasis that has gone to other abdominal organs or to the chest. Um, so I think imaging can certainly be um, a very good guiding tool in um, the therapeutic and also prognostic sort of decision making for the dog that we're seeing. See, if, I, if I'm getting this right, see, my understanding, and I could, I could absolutely be incredibly wrong about this, is that if you... Um, if you have a hemangiosarcoma, like the chances are it's, it's kind of spread already. So whether you can see that grossly or not, mm -hmm. does that mean that if you see it grossly on a chest radiograph, then your prognosis is, is worse than if you don't, even though like in both cases it's, it's spread? Does that, does that kind of make yes. sense? Yeah, that's that's definitely fair to say. Just to sort of throw some numbers out there. Um, so we do know that... Um, in general, hemangiosarcomas are very aggressive tumours, so we do know that they have spread, although we are um, sometimes unable to, to visualise that. Um, so we do assume that tumour cells have seeded into other organs, um, hence the justification to um, discuss chemotherapy as an adjuvant after surgery. Um, but um, what we sort of trying to... Um, to identify really is, um, is there gross metastatic disease that we can already see in the lungs or in the liver or throughout the abdomen? Because we do know if those dogs undergo surgery for the primary tumour, um, their survival time is extremely limited up to about three months, even with chemotherapy afterwards. Um, whereas um, if we do not find gross metastatic disease and remove the primary tumour, we can prolong this to six, eight months, sometimes even more. Um, so we're potentially doubling the survival time, although the overall prognosis is still poor. And so what, what the idea about, um, uh, so I suppose re re removing the primary tumour is really to, to, to stop ongoing hemorrhage and blood loss from from that side right and and do you think that um or is that do we have information i suppose now the ct has been 
maybe in, in, in referral practices, more of a go-to um, uh, piece of piece of diagnostic imaging for the, for the last sort of you know ten fifteen years, maybe maybe a bit longer. Do we have more information about the, you know that level of metastases, and if we can see something that it is going to be that sort of uh, three months, does it matter kind of like the size that you that you see or, or where it is? So if you see something in the liver, that's all right, but in the lungs, it's not so good, or is, is there no real information about about that? Um, so I think what's definitely improved is the availability of the imaging techniques that we have. Um, so certainly for, for any sarcoma to detect metastases that may be as small as a few millimetres um, in, in size, whether that is lung, whether that is heart in case of hemangiosarcomas or liver or spleen, um, is, is certainly the CT would be my to go to diagnostic um, imaging step. Um, however, if we do find a larger lesion in, in either of those organs, it, it doesn't really matter at that point. Um, so most commonly we'll find that we have um, diffuse spread throughout the abdomen or we have um, secondary liver or spleen involvement or the heart. Um, in all of those cases, the survival time is very similar. Um, the only cases that I have encountered that have, despite finding gross metastasis, lived a little longer um, is um, when we found metastasis to the lungs. Um, and my guess is, um, I can't really base that on anything scientific right now, really, um, is that those mets, they're there, but they tend to be smaller in size and pose um, a, a lower risk for, for bleeding, um, is, is my guess. Fair enough. That's um, that's that's really that's really interesting. And so, um, with with a CT as well, do, can we see if there is a, an obvious mass on the on the heart as well, or is or do, do depends on on sort of the CT setup that you have, or, or do you think that we should um, look at the heart of of these of these patients as well, if we know that a certain mm. percentage are gonna are gonna spread to the to the um, to the right atrium oracle area. Yes, absolutely. So oftentimes on the CT, we do get an idea. Um, but I wouldn't say that for all cases it is the most sensitive um, uh, imaging modality. So we actually check all our um, dogs with hemangiosarcoma with an echocardiogram, um, so with um, ultrasound, um, which um, for smaller masses is, seems to be more sensitive, or if they're not completely raised um, on, on the hard base, is, is easier to see. Um, unfortunately, we are very... Um, unlikely in a position where we sample any of those lesions. Um, so the history of the dog, um, the definitive diagnosis of a hemangiosarcoma with a hard mass will then lead us to the conclusion that this is metastatic disease um, from hemangiosarcoma. And we will hence discuss um, a, quite a poor survival time for that dog based on that. Um, however, we are rarely in a position where we can prove this um for the owner and so so if you go down the the, the path um for uh, re surgical removal of the of the what you think is the primary tumor there's not necessarily obvious um metastases that you can you can see is it is there a a set uh, chemotherapy and protocol sort of for these and also how long do you do you tend to wait post-operatively to mm. to to start that so there are actually a variety of protocols out there. Um, however, the majority of them 
includes an anthracycline-based agent as the very minimum. Um, and the probably most classic one would be um, the doxorubicin. Um, generally, all those protocols tend to start 10 to 14 days after the surgery, um, provided the dog is is well and has truly recovered from surgery. So we tend to see them back, um, remove the stitches um, and have a look at the wound ourselves um, and then assess um, whether they would make a good candidate to, to start chemotherapy then. Um, so having talked a little bit about the doxorubicin-based protocols, um, so some will, and that's probably clinician dependent in all honesty, um, will go for a doxorubicin single agent protocol um, sort of every three weeks um, for generally a maximum of six doses. Um, that is given um, other protocols that are out there, including anthracyclines would be in combination with cyclophosphamide, vincristine. Um, now, a lot of those treatments are, well, a little more invasive if you want so because they're all intravenous um, and there has been a more recent move to investigate whether we can offer chemotherapy on a sort of less intense basis um, knowing that we're obviously dealing with a very aggressive cancer um, and there are now sort of tablet formulations um, that we call metronomic chemotherapy uh, where the owner, owner it's himself or herself does a lot of the treatment um, at home and we don't have to see the dog back um, as regularly as for the injectable chemotherapies. Um, so um, I think that is a good sort of recent alternative um, that more and more clients find um, very attractive. Is it to do with the fact that clients prefer that or might or, or vets might prefer that because they don't have to come in and use such sort of heavy-handed uh, chemotherapy agents or is it because actually there's there's no real difference we can find in in sort of outcomes so i suppose is, is one better than the other or, or we we kind of don't know so so maybe the the metronomic is a um a more palatable way forward mm. i think um clients do find the tablet version the metronomic chemo quite attractive um, I think from the point of view that their dog is with them at home um, for longer periods of time and they don't have to drive around a lot with an animal that very likely doesn't have a very good overall prognosis so I think it just um, comforts the client that they're doing something for their dog um, but it is not um, as invasive um, now, when this whole movement with starting metronomic chemotherapy started, there wasn't very good evidence um, on whether this is um, better than the anthracycline-based one or is just as good. Um, but more recent reports, and they're still scars, but they're there, um, have actually shown that dogs that receive the metronomic chemo alone compared to a group of dogs that receive the anthracycline-based protocol did just as well. Um, so I think there is more and more evidence coming um, that it is a very good alternative. Um, some um, protocols look um, um, quite, um, well, intense again from a way that they start with an anthracycline-based um, protocol um, we're in, having the theory or the theoretical background that this higher dose chemo will destroy remaining tumour cells that we in hemangiosarcomas know they're there. 
um, and then following up with a metronomic chemo to try and maintain the response that we've achieved. So this is at the moment my my very personal um, regime as well, if, if the client is on board. Um, but um, we do have good evidence that um, anthracycline versus metronomic achieves um, similar survival times. Um, now, what we don't know yet, but I think studies are looking into that at the moment, is if there is a survival benefit if you combine the anthracycline with follow-up metronomic, if those patients do better. So is, is that some ongoing um, studies in, in the world, Irina? Yes, yes, that's correct. Because I think um, there was lots initially on different anthracycline-based protocols, and there was a big push for um, using those um, and then more and more this new um, metronomic movement I want to call it um, has sort of come around and everyone starts treating different cancers with metronomic treatment um, and that's been established that they seem to be very comparable in their outcome um, but now um, they want to say if we combine those two together, if we have a very good weapon against this very aggressive cancer type. And what, what sort of monitoring do you need um, for, I suppose, like base types of chemotherapy that you use for these um, for these for these dogs? And and do they um, have a lot of side effects, or clinically do you see that? I know every I know every drug does have a side effect, but I suppose clinically in their use, is it something you commonly see? Or, or do they yeah. seem to tolerate um, these protocols pretty well? Yeah, so generally any sort of high-dose chemotherapy protocol, so the example here would be the um, anthracycline-based one, um, comes with the possibility of having higher um, side effects uh, or more frequent side effects than the metronomic um, chemotherapy protocol. Um, Overall, um, thankfully, we can say in our patients that um, if we compare ourselves with um, what happens to people receiving chemotherapy, um, is that the risk for um, experiencing side effects is relatively low. Um, generally, having mild side effects occurs in roughly 20% of dogs. Um, and severe side effects um, would be anything where a hospitalization is required and then a, a follow-up dose reduction or exchanging the drug for another. That occurs in about 1% to 2% of patients. So it isn't, um, it isn't a very high number, um, but it is definitely something that... Um, always needs to be discussed with with the client because obviously if it happens to their pet um, that can be absolutely devastating for them um, and is always sort of included in our monitoring and, and management going forward um, for for doxorubicin specifically um, we um, do um, we perform a hematology prior to every treatment um, in, in dogs, we also need a heart scan to make sure it is um, there is no underlying heart condition. Now, in our hemangiosarcoma cases, a lot of the time we already have that information um, because they would have had in their initial workup an echocardiogram done to see whether there is an additional mass or not. Um, in if we have a cat with hemangiosarcoma, um, a heart scan is not necessary because they're not. It's not a cardiotoxic drug to cats, um, but we monitor renal function in in cats for for, for those protocols. Um, looking at side effects and monitoring for metronomic, it is um, 
unlikely almost, I want to say, that uh, we encounter any hematological side effects. Extremely rare. I can't put a number to it, but it is very, very rare. Um, if there are different agents that can be used in the metronomic setting, the probably best evaluated one at the moment for hemangiosarcoma would be cyclophosphamide and thalidomide. Um, cyclophosphamide can cause something that's called sterile hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, and hence we ask the owners to regularly collect urine and check it for um, blood contents. Um, as if this manifests as a clinical cystitis can be extremely difficult or even impossible to manage. Uh, for thalidomide, the other drug, we don't actually need more than a hematology again. Um, with this drug, it may just be if we inform the client about this drug, it has quite a, um, well, historically, um, it comes with um, quite a few regulations and um, got quite a devastating um, well history to it. Um, it may have been known as a yeah, teratogenic, uh, cancerogenic drug to um, to women um, who used to get this prescribed as an anti nausea medication when they were pregnant, um, and it was taken off the market um, because of that for for a while, causing. Um, severe um, genetic alterations to um, the fetus. Um, so for this drug, certainly we have to do a little bit more explaining when um, prescribing it and make sure that no pregnant lady is in the household and there are no babies or around. Um, that is a general conversation we obviously have with the client, but given the history of this particular drug, um, thalidomide, it um, is um, a very um, well, intense discussion, I, I want to say, that we have to make sure there is really no pregnant lady in um, close to the dog. I, I was not aware that um, that, that drug was was, um, was being being used, but uh, yeah, I'm sure that uh, raises interesting interesting questions um, uh, about about that. And it's it's um, very interesting. Can I um, ask as, as well, like as, as adjuncts to chemotherapy? I know that um, because I suppose the very nature of the of the neoplasia causes bleeding. Do you, do you some uh, oncologists think about using tranexamic acid or aminocuperic acid, I suppose, in, in North America? And and um, and do we have any information sort of a, about that, or is it better just left parked somewhere else? <laughs> Um, so I've, I've definitely used uh, tranexamic acid for um, hemangiosarcomas. I very personally have only used it if there was evidence of um, visual, well, metastatic disease that we could see, um, and there may be a risk for for bleeding. However, um, to my knowledge, there isn't a very good evidence base for for giving it. Um, it is almost sometimes being in a situation where we try. Um, very, very hard to prevent any bleeding from happening. Um, and um, therefore, we, we're using um, agents to try and reduce the risk for, for bleeding. And one of them certainly is tranexamic acid. Um, maybe on that note, um, I'll just maybe deviate slightly from, from chemotherapy. There is um, some evidence for, um, you might laugh about this now, um, about a so-called mushroom. Um, which is called um, Yanunbayao, 
um, that has been evaluated to reduce the risk for bleeding for a variety of tumours and especially for hemangiosarcoma. And there are actually um, some reports out there reporting um, a benefit um, to, to the patient um, with um, smaller bleeds. Obviously, no significant bleeds so wouldn't stop that. Um, but um, it, 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 was, it certainly seems to be capable of um, reducing some of those bleeds. I, I suppose, like with everything, it's uh, um, that I'm aware of aware of that, and, and I suppose um, that, you know, does it cause harm to the patient or the risk of it? And I, and I think we, you know, know that chalcosamic acid might um, be quite good at inhibiting fibrinolysis, lysis, but I suppose that means that that you know the the you know, maybe it's going to cause more problems than 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 good as as well. So I suppose yeah. it, you know, it's still. Uh, up in the air, and coagulation is one of those wonderfully complicated things that um, that we, we only know yes. like a little, a little bit of a little bit about. Um, and is there is there anything um, I suppose like up and up and coming with hemangiosarcomas? I know when uh, or, or I remember in in practice, um, particularly with neoplasia as well, everyone or clients tend to ask about you know blood tests to identify mm. whether a neoplasia is there or or even to help, I suppose, with prognosis. And I know that, that a lot of work has been done with certain types of neoplasias in, in dogs and cats um, with that regard. But is there any characteristics um, looking at how, say, ag- aggressive certain hemangiosarcomas are or, or, or with sarcomas in general that there's, mm-hmm. there's no, um, you know, n- nothing new is, is kind of on the, on the horizon? So it is nothing on on the market, as as far as I'm aware. Um, However, there is, um, University of Texas is actually in the process of trying to develop a blood test um, for a variety of tumours, and um, hemangiosarcomas is is one of them, um, where they're trying um, with a blood test to um, have sort of an early detection um, tool um, as well as um, trying to diagnose hemangiosarcomas if, for example, a splenic or hepatic mass has been identified without the presence of a hemoabdomen. Um, obviously, that would be a great tool to have um, as we wouldn't have to play the, the guessing game almost of, oh, there is a mass in the spleen or the liver. Cytology was inconclusive and we're then left with the question, okay, do we actually take the next step now, taking the animal for um, surgery or it would be nice for for those animals to have a diagnostic tool available that could dis- distinguish um, those um, from benign lesions that we may be able to just monitor for a little bit longer. Um, so they are working on that. Um, and I believe um, I, I've had a, a chat with um, the lady who's, who's leading um, this um, investigation and I believe they're trying to bring it onto the market early next year. Um, so there is something in the making um, regarding trying to diagnose hemangiosarcomas from a different, uh, in a different way. Um, however, I'm not aware of any new um, therapeutic options for hemangiosarcomas in particular. Um, there are for for other sarcomas, people are working um, very hard on getting vaccinations um, for for patients. Um, one recent classic example that'll hit the market um, or has already hit the market in the US um, is for canine osteosarcomas. 
um, but um, currently not available for hemangiosarcoma. And well, that's, that's good to <clears throat> good to know that people are, are uh, trying to work on sort of diff- different different ways. And I just feel like with a number of things, it, it just um, it just takes time, doesn't it, for mm. uh, for these things to to filter from from people to um, uh, to, to animals and. And so do, do you have like common questions that that, uh, that vets will ask you about uh, hemangiosarcomas? I think probably the um, most common questions are going towards survival time um, and what's sort of the best course of action um, versus surgery alone um, and what is the benefit of throwing in chemotherapy afterwards. Um, although we still at this time we have to say the overall prognosis is poor um, we do have very strong evidence um, that we can um, double the survival time of the dogs um, that receive adjuvant chemotherapy usually with surgery alone with just removing the primary tumor even if no evidence of gross metastasis is seen um, the survival time is three months um, whereas we're increasing that to six eight months with follow-up chemotherapy um, so that is certainly one of the questions. Um, and I think um, the more sort of recent questions go into, into treatment. Um, are we still using anthracycline-based um, drugs? Um, do we combine them with anything else? Or um, what, what other treatment options are available? So I think there are more and more, it can be client-driven, I think, at times, but also more vets looking to um, find alternative treatment options that may mean that they can do some of the treatments in their practice because um, not every practice is necessarily set up uh, or wants to give doxorubicin because it comes with different and higher associated risks um, administering the drug. Um, so I think there is a movement to try and find alternatives that um, will allow some um, practices to, to, to keep the chemotherapy in-house. That's, um, that's great. And my, my, my own sort of per- perceptions um, about this this disease although it's it's um horrific and has a, a grave prognosis long term is that a lot of the time because these dogs come in and they've um uh, they come in because they've collapsed and they've bled and they're quite mm-hmm. acute illness that actually when you when you do remove their spleen and they they sort out their own um, um hematocrit levels or, or pcv levels then actually they they tend to live quite happily yes. you know their quality of life is is good and and has that actually been looked at or is that your perception as well that their quality of life is is pretty good so though it is nothing you know something that we can't yeah. you know extend you know beyond eight months maybe you know at, at, a, at a max but um but actually they, they tend to be you know part of the family and mm. and do the normal things that they like to do is that is that your perception as well or or do I just see skewed cases no no absolutely I would completely agree with that and that's obviously one of our sort of utmost goals to bring those patients back to um, their normal their normal selves and enjoy a good quality of life which is absolutely what we're achieving for for those patients if they don't obviously have chemotherapy associated side effects in which case we're rethinking the whole regime Um, But absolutely, and that is one question we always get um, from the clients is what will the quality of life be if my dog undergoes chemotherapy and if they have to restrict the dog um, 
for example, some don't know if the dog can still enjoy swimming or if they can enjoy uh, ball play or engage with other dogs. Um, and um, usually we, we can really comfort them in, in saying that they should do everything they enjoy for, for as long as they're happy, um, which um, sort of brings me a little bit to almost yeah, a, a warning in, in, in a way is um, obviously if these animals receive chemotherapy, um, then sometimes when we make them, let's say, neutropenic and they are very lethargic, it can be very alarming to the owners to witness this because these symptoms will look very similar um, to when they first presented the dog um, to either their referring vet or to um, an, an emergency room um, because they will look like they are bleeding from somewhere again. Um, so I sort of want to make sure that we are aware of the history of those dogs if they have received chemotherapy um, we always tend to run a hematology because if we find a pronounced neutropenia we can explain the dog's lethargy um, and obviously check for a repeat bleed somewhere because um, very often the clients can be very um um very anxious that they are in the same situation they were in initially um and potentially almost overreact in wanting to obviously leave, um, let the dog go pain-free. Um, but that um, obviously we want to make sure this doesn't happen prematurely because um, if chemotherapy causes side effects, it can make the dog look like um, he's having another bleed. That's a, a good, good, um, good tip. And, and is that one of the, the things that you, you would talk to sort of clients uh, about as in what I suppose... I mean, obviously, everyone thinks you have a a, a, a magic uh, a magic crystal ball, I should say, and you can predict, you know, when when th how long things are going to progress for. And I imagine, uh, you know, the prognosis, I suppose, like how long people would, would um, animals will have. But obviously, we can't do that because it could be a day or, as you said, like eight months, like and somewhere in, in between. Mm -hmm. um, but do the, do clients ask something um, as as well? Do they have? Like, is it more related to not only prognosis but also the how like chemotherapy will it, will affect them? Or, or do they, or, or do they ask you similarly in general practice? You know, what would you do if it was your dog? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did. We do get all those questions. I think probably one of the most common ones um, is to find out about the chemotherapy side effects because a, a lot of people will have um, relatives, unfortunately, that um, underwent chemotherapy themselves, um, and the the client may may have been a witness to um, how how poorly um, their their friend or their family members felt throughout this. Um, so this is often uh, the very first um, conversation coming even before what's the prognosis for the dog um, so that is definitely a factor um, where people are feeling very anxious about that their dog has a good quality of life and um, does not lose his hair and um, does not suffer unnecessarily um, so that is um, a very very big conversation um, and yes absolutely I've had clients ask me the question um, whether I have a dog or a cat and um, how, how I would decide for for my own pet um, which can be a very very um, difficult um, question really because um, in honesty um, I, 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 I always well, honestly state to them I I, I don't know um, I, I think for for some of the questions to be answered I have to be in in the situation and, and decided that at that um, 
point in time. So um, I, I'll try and remind them of what facts essentially we try to consider for for the case, and the owner will know their their dog best, um, and and know what what is possible. Is it possible for the dog to come in regularly every three weeks for chemotherapy, or is the dog better off left alone actually uh, and enjoy its life at home? It, it tends to be a um, a favourite question, doesn't it? And uh, and and it's a very um, good way of of answering that. Uh, I think it's. Uh, it's it's always challenging because it's because some because knowing more information means you you have a a perception that you might persuade them one way or, or the other and it's really mm. t- really difficult to um to to know and I, I think sometimes when we um when I speak to referring vets about dogs that have a hemo abdomen I think one of the one of the things I do say to them is that do, do the clients know it's near plastic and I think because sometimes that changes people's minds immediately as you kind of said with that um. Uh, if they've had uh, relatives that had chemotherapy before or just the idea of cancer sometimes as a decision maker with, with people and you don't want to yes. take them you know you don't want to start that process or have that conversation where they don't want to proceed sort of any any further for, for whatever reason and obviously that's that's the individual's um reason to 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 do that so yes. no, it's, a, it's a good 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 point and just just touch on the um uh, with, with with cats, if you wouldn't mind, is 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 sarcoma uh, a? I imagine it's pretty pretty rare tumor in cats. Mm. And is there specific areas that it happens? And is it a similar um, kind of horrendous neoplasia to have if a, if you're a cat? Yes, so it's very a very rare tumor in cats, and unfortunately, um, we still don't know um, a lot about it. Um, so, we'll probably. From from what we know, it seems to have a very similar behavior and um, well preference location wise to to the dog. Um, probably the number one um, location again would be spleen and liver. Um, although we have um, there are a few reports of um, renal uh, and retroperitoneal hemangiosarcomas in cats, um, but it seems to be definitely concentrating in in the abdomen. Um, the hemangiosarcoma together, I believe, with um, mast cell tumors is the most common um, cause for a hemoabdomen in cats when it comes to cancer. So those two types of, of tumors, um, if we're suspecting um, a tumor in a cat, um, would be um, the two main potential causes um, for hemoabdomen in a cat. Um, we treat cats pretty much exactly like like dogs um that is what is reported and there is no one unfortunately um as far as i'm aware that has looked into any alternative treatments um so for the cat we classically would be using doxorubicin um i'm sure there will be movements towards metronomic chemotherapy as well however we have absolutely no information whether this works as well let's say, as in the dog, um, hence why we would discuss doxorubicin as our treatment of choice um, following surgery. And um, the reports that are there, the survival times are maybe even poorer than than in the dog. Um, So anything sort of in the three to six months area is unfortunately realistic in cats. 
Yeah, fair enough. Good, good to good to know. I know that having a hemodermin in a cat that's non-traumatic is a is a bad thing to have. I didn't didn't appreciate that uh, hemangial sarcomas are the um, um, likely sort of culprit for that. But it but it makes sense that it's um, not a good thing to have if you're a, if you're a cat. Um, so thank thank you very much. Is there, is there anything do you think, Irina, that we've we've missed out on the on the hemangiosarcoma sort of topic or things that you think questions that we we should have um, covered? I think I think we've pretty much covered a lot um, around the visceral um, hemangiosarcomas. I think maybe just sort of a brief note on. Um, other locations where we can find hemangiosarcomas, um, we might, when we read up about them, we might find um, sort of different stages and grades of hemangiosarcomas when skin is involved. And then often we find them defined into cutaneous, subcutaneous and intramuscular. I think it might just be sort of an important note to remember that intramuscular hemangiosarcomas behave very similar to the visceral ones, um, so can be very aggressive. Thankfully, they're rare. Um, subcutaneous one being a little bit sort of an in-betweener so I would consider staging for those guys um, and um, potentially chemotherapy cutaneous thankfully we can manage a lot of them with surgery alone however I would think about imaging slash staging for those ones as well to make sure it is not a potential metastasis from an um, internal um, hemangiosarcoma. I think um, I just thought I'll mention those three at the end because they're sort of part of, um, yeah, dog, canine hemangiosarcomas. Do, do they represent quite a a, a, a significant amount of, of hemangiosarcomas or are they still, um, still spleen, liver, uh, heart-based tumours more, more common? I think definitely spleen, liver is more common. Um, when it comes to heart as a primary, I would almost want to say cutaneous and subcutaneous tumours are more common than a primary heart um, hemangiosarcoma. Okay. Well, thank you um, again sort of so, so much um, for your time to, to today. And um, and I think that there's, there's you know, a, a great um, overall getting us all up to sort of speed on, on where we are with hemangiosarcomas at, at the moment. And, uh, and I look forward to, to finding out about what happens with um, blood tests and identification of, of tumours early and maybe we can um, have a better understanding of if we can find these earlier then maybe we can um, have different sort of out outcomes for these for these patients so, um, so yeah thank you very much again. No no problem it was a it was a pleasure and I think we're all sort of as oncologists looking forward to um, blood tests and making um, a diagnosis easier for us and, and the client. Excellent. And um, so, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll wrap it up there. And um, thank you for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Acast, wherever you get this podcast, that would be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any others. We, we're open to anyone listening to this podcast. And we'll place some show notes in the RBC pages. So if you just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rbc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.